I'm so excited to be here. Super excited. I know there's lots of familiar faces, and then there's several new faces. Um, so I just want to start with just introducing myself. I am Shelly Spence. I get to be a licensed professional counselor, and I work with preteens up through up through adults, really. Gen Z is mostly where I focus. So like 13-year-olds all the way up to like 28-year-olds is kind of where I like to be. I love to work with trauma and really challenging behaviors. And one of the things that kind of has brought me here is this calling that the Lord has given me to wake up, stand up, and speak up on behalf of the vulnerable. And specifically to be able to bridge the gap between, um, between the helping professions and believers. And so, as the Lord is opening opportunities like this, I get to speak to believers and equip believers with information about trauma so that we can be um, better equipped to be the hands and feet of Jesus to people who are suffering and who are vulnerable. And so, the topic for tonight is how to help hurting people, and I'm hopeful that this will be able to equip you as you work with people in crisis. I believe everything that we'll talk about pretty much applies to teenagers up. And so hopefully the populations that you serve will fall in there somewhere. Um, the four, this four-step process, I do want to give credit where it's due. So when I was in college a long time ago, <laughs> I read the book Counseling Teenagers by Josh McDowell, and he outlined a, four, a similar four-step process. And I have used this process over the last 20-something years. My husband is a youth pastor, and so I've used this a lot with the teenagers that we work with and with adults that I've ministered to. And so this is kind of how it's evolved for me over the last few years. I know that when we think about helping people in crisis, sometimes that can feel very scary and like, maybe I can't do this. Maybe this is for somebody else. Maybe this is for the professionals, the people that are trained. And I want to remind you that God, through his Holy Spirit, he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. With the same help that we've received, we can give other people comfort. And so you are very much equipped to do this, to walk into the, um, to the crisis, to help the people that are hurting. And then as we check in, I want to know what are some ways that you feel prepared to help, um, to help the people who come to you for help? Maybe they're in crisis. I know that y'all come from different ministries, different ways that you minister to people. What are ways that you feel prepared? I've learned to listen and be patient. Yes, listen and be patient, very big. <laughs> Somebody else. At the right time, share the gospel. Yes, share the gospel. I'm learning that I don't have to do it by myself. That um, I, there are people around me, support people, friends, and stuff that are willing to help me. So as I'm helping somebody else, I'm not alone. Most definitely. We're going to talk about that tonight. All right. Um, we might skip this one. It sounds like y'all know what's going well. Y'all shared that. What fears do you have as you work towards helping people in crisis or people that are hurting? Make it worse. Make it worse, yes. Put poor gasoline on the fire. <laughs> uh-huh. Most definitely. Yes. Those are all fears that I have too, especially when I go into a new situation. What's your greatest need as you seek to draw near to help the hurting people that you serve? Or maybe the hurting people in your home? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Holy Spirit guidance, yes. Maybe we need to know what to say, what not to say. When to say it, how to say it, all the things, yes. Yes, that's big. Yeah. Well, these are all great, and I think we'll cover a lot of these tonight. So one of the things that I wanted to start with <clears throat> is just what you talked about, Jessica, is that you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be the only one that is supporting this person. And it can feel overwhelming and scary to think about helping someone in crisis. 
even stepping in to crisis. I know before, uh, well, I would say before, but truthfully, even as a young counselor, I still had this fear of walking towards people in crisis. <laughs> I was like, ooh, there's a lot going on over there. I'm just going to go this way. <laughs> Somebody else is going to handle that. Um, and so if that's where you are tonight, I get you. I've, I am you. <laughs> I understand that. I feel like something happened over there. <laughs> the lights. <laughs> but the good news is what I have learned is you don't have to know all the answers. I think it's just that light bulb. Um, so we're going to start with a few truths here. The first one is obviously you don't have to know all the answers. We care about people. We want to be able to help. And sometimes I think we know that we are inadequate. Like, I haven't been through this particular crisis. I haven't experienced this particular life experience. And we think that disqualifies us. And the truth is you know more and you can do more than you realize. And so I'm going to give you some keys tonight to help you with that. But um, don't let this discount you being able to help. You don't have to have all the answers. And you don't need to do this alone. Your goal really is to build a community around the people that are hurting. You don't want to be their, their sole lifesaver. <laughs> so your goal is to incorporate other people along the way. And then you also need to surround you with other people, maybe people that have knowledge that you don't have that you can bring into the situation. So you don't have to do this alone. And you don't have to fix anyone. So you don't have to have all the answers to all the problems. You don't have to come in with all these solutions. Um, so if that feels like maybe it might disqualify you because you don't have all the answers, then you are perfect for the job because you don't have to fix anyone. And I, we'll talk about some skills to help you um, kind of be able to be able to hear people out, figure out, and kind of help them to find the solution that they need. And I'll give you some specific steps so you'll know what to do. Instead of trying to fix, you'll just kind of know how to guide them to the next step. So a quick overview. The four steps are listen, encourage, guide, and refer. And for listen, we're going to learn pretty much three key ingredients to listening well when a hurting individual is sharing, sharing with us. And then for encourage, I know encouragement doesn't come naturally to everybody. And so we'll talk about some top tips to help you to encourage them in the moment, in the midst of that crisis. And then for guide, well, this is kind of the nitty gritty. This is the nuts and bolts. We'll spend most of our time here. And these will be practical strategies. I'm all about practical. But these will be practical strategies that you can um, guide a person to to create an action plan for them um, to help them in the situation that they're in. And then finally, we'll spend some time talking about referring. So knowing when this might be above your pay grade and you want to get help from somebody who maybe has a little more education in this particular subject than you do. And so you'll know what to look for and who to send them to so that you can sleep well at night and not worry about their well-being. All right? So let's start with listen. We'll unpack this one for a minute. So as a whole, our society does not do a very good job of listening. Um, most of us. Uh, when, they're, when we are listening to someone talk, we really are maybe planning our grocery list while you run your mouth. <laughs> or maybe we're planning our answer, um, how we're going to respond to you, um, based on the first two or three words that you just said, you know, in your whole paragraph, your whole book of, of explanation. Um, or we are totally distracted and not paying attention. And so I want to give us just some very very practical ways that we can demonstrate that we're listening for someone because the here's the deal. Somebody who's in crisis, most often they don't just choose anybody on the street to talk to. Most often it's, they've, got a, they've got a sense of trust with you. And so we want to be able, if we're the only person that they feel safe enough to share this with, we want to be able to be open um, so that they can continue to feel safe and share what they need to share. Listening is a way that we build that safety. So, obviously, we don't want to interrupt when they're talking, <laughs> um, and we don't want to be distracted, so we want to make sure we put our phones away. I think first things first, too, is watching your posture as, as you sit with them. So we probably want to avoid being knee-to-knee -knee because that puts people on the defensive. Um, so maybe instead pull up alongside of them and sit next to them. Or if you can, maybe angle your chair at an angle, maybe like 90 degrees is better. So then you're kind of looking sideways at them instead of 
head on. Um, that just helps to disarm, disarm fear, and disarm kind of that safety um, response. And then I think, too, being present with them is also leaning toward them, letting them know that you are interested. How many times do you talk with someone, maybe your spouse, maybe somebody else, <laughs> and they're kind of looking over here, and they're looking, you know, and the whole time you're like, hey, hey, I'm right here. So we want to make sure that when they are talking about something that might be the most important thing or the biggest thing that's happened to them, we want to make sure that we're listening and giving them our full attention and leaning forward, letting them know that we are present. And then listening also involves asking um, curious questions. So you might start with what's going on, but then I would just keep asking lots of open-ended questions. Okay, tell me more about that. That's interesting. Tell me more about that and keeping my poker face on, too, while listening. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but if I keep a poker face on, then I'm communicating, I can handle this without judgment. I can handle whatever you've got to say so that you can keep talking and share all that you need to to get off your mind. So that is kind of the, the basics of listening. I feel like y'all probably do that very well. The next thing, besides being fully present, is normalizing. When we are in crisis, or maybe when we are in a season of depression, maybe when we're coming out of a panic attack or serious anxiety, we can start to feel isolated and alone and start to feel like nobody else has ever experienced this like I have, um, because that's Satan's tactic. We are created for community, and he does everything he can to keep us out of community and to isolate us. And he starts with, helping us believe that we are the only person that's ever experienced this, that we are alone. So as quickly as we can, we want to be able to normalize, if at all possible, and remind them that, you are, that th there are other people that experience the same thing. You are not alone. And if you can, share from your story. But if not, that's okay. Hello, welcome. And I think, too, it's important to remember that if you're in crisis, or maybe if you're in a struggling season, there's a lot of shame that accompanies that. And we want to disarm the shame, disarm the fear. And one way to do that is to normalize. You're not alone. And even biblically, we can remind them that there's nothing new under the sun. All of the struggles that we have today as a society, they had even in Bible times. And they've had ever since then, and will probably continue to have until Jesus returns. And so helping to normalize already calms the fear, calms, um, calms the nervous system. And then another way that you can practice active listening is to reflect what you hear them say. So part of being a good listener is making sure that you heard someone correctly. And a lot of times, when we hear somebody talking, we filter through our own experiences or through our own triggers or through our own lens, and we may not hear exactly what they were trying to communicate. What we heard might not be the same as what they intended. And so one way to correct that or to make sure that we're not doing that is to reflect what we heard them say. And so you might let them talk for a while and then say, okay, let me summarize. What I think I heard you say was, and then you repeat it back in your own words. And then ask them, is that right? And then you give them the opportunity to be able to correct that for you. So, no, 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 that's not right at all. Let me try again, right? And then, okay, so then what I heard you say this time was, am I getting closer? Um, because we want to make sure that they feel heard. And they feel heard when we have good listening skills. And one of those is reflecting what we heard them say. We also want to reflect what we hear them say because we, it, it is our human tendency to go ahead and jump into the fix-it mode. And if I can remind myself, just reflect, just reflect, just listen and reflect, then I don't jump into, well, let me tell you what you need to do about depression right now. Um, or let me tell you how I got through that crisis when I was there five years ago. I just keep on listening, keep reflecting so that they can keep getting out everything they need to tell me about this story, about this situation right now. So we do that to help us not get into fix-it mode. And then also we do this because... I know especially for those of us who don't, maybe don't struggle with anxiety, it can be very tempting to say, um, well, just don't be anxious. <laughs> just stop it. Just don't worry, right? Which is the very least helpful thing that we can say to an anxious person or like a depressed person. Well, just, just get up and move and you'll feel better, right? So many things that we, they're very practical. They just are not very helpful. And so if we can remember, 
to stick with reflect what you heard them say, then you will help them you will help them to feel heard. Before you jump in and start fixing, there is a time for coming up with a plan, but this is not it. We wanna let the bleeding stop first. We wanna help them to get out everything they need to get out first, and then it's our turn to help kinda of guide them along a plan. So that's coming, you just kinda of have to bite your tongue for a minute. So we wanna lead with empathy, reflecting what we heard, um, and what that looks like could be, um, so what I hear you saying is, or it sounds like you're really angry about, this thing over here, is that right? And sometimes they don't have the words to express. So when we can reflect, hmm, sounds like you're really um, jealous of what's going on over here. Yes, that's it, I didn't even think about that. So we wanna be able to help them, maybe even put words to it. And then I wanna encourage you to hear them out. Most often the first thing that somebody shares with you is not the main thing they wanna share with you. They are testing the waters most often. This especially occurs with teenagers, but really with people in crisis, sometimes we kind of revert to teenage and childhood ways. Um, and so most often they may throw something out that is kind of big that you might think is the main thing. But if you stick with them for a minute, you'll find that there's, there's more, there's more. And this was just a test to make sure that first of all, you're not gonna judge. And second of all, you're gonna listen and not jump right into a lecture or fix it mode, right? I need to know how safe I am with you first before I share with you the really big thing that I wanna share with you. Um, so that's why we do all of these things first so that we can get to the, the nitty gritty. We can get to the meat of what they wanna share with us. Along these lines, we wanna make sure we keep our poker face on because if we react shocked or like, oh, I cannot believe, you know, or ooh, or disgusted or whatever, horror, whatever it is. If we act like that, then we have already demonstrated that we're probably not a safe person. Or we've demonstrated that maybe we can't handle whatever it is they've got and they need to go somewhere else. Um, so for a lot of people, especially if Satan has us so isolated, right, in my crisis or in whatever mental health challenge I'm going through, I feel like it's too much for me to carry and nobody else can carry it either. And so if I'm trying to share it, and I'm just sharing some little thing, just to throw it out there and test you and see what's going on, if you overreact to the little thing, then I know you can't handle this really big thing that already feels overwhelming to me. So we wanna make sure we have our poker face on. And so when I have to put my poker face on, <laughs> my go-to phrase is, that's interesting, tell me more. And so whatever it is they just said, right? It could be, it could be anything. It could be the most horrific thing you've heard, it could be the most bizarre thing you've heard, that's interesting, tell me more about that. And then, is there anything else? Because I want to hear them out. I want them to be able to get out all that they want to say before I jump in and start directing things. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So those are some, some practical ways that we can start to listen. And listening really is opening the door. It's opening the door to the conversation. It's already laying the foundation for safety so that they know that they can, that you're a safe person. They can come to you and we can work through the rest of this this um, process. So the next one is encourage. And the first way to do that is to acknowledge their courage. The truth is there's a lot of shame attached to a lot of mental health issues. And the fact that I chose you to be the one that I'm gonna share this very big secret that I've never shared with anybody else took a lot of courage. And so one thing that we can do also to kind of help disarm the fear and decrease the shame is just to say, I really appreciate the courage that it took for you to share this with me. I am so proud of you. And that right there can be huge for them because what they thought they were going to hear from you was, oh my goodness, I cannot believe, you know? And so when we can come and say, I just appreciate the courage it took for you to share this, it just changes things. It changes the tone and the mood of everything. And then we want to be able to offer perspective. This is not fixing the problem, but this is offering perspective. Um, when we are in crisis mode or survival mode, you know, whatever it is, we can lose perspective. We can forget the promises of God. We can forget that he has promised he will be with us always. We can forget those things and we need a good friend. We need someone to remind us, he's with you, he's got you. He's never gonna leave you. And then we also wanna keep in mind that most teens and young adults believe that the way things are today is the way they will always be. So like if their parents are going through a divorce or fighting or arguing, they really can't see past today. 
And as far as they know, the way everything went down today or has been this week is the way it's going to be for the rest of my life or until I graduate or until I move out early. And so we want to be able to offer them perspective that joy does come in the morning, that seasons come and seasons go, and the way things are today is not the way they will always be necessarily. So we want to be able to give perspective. That is so very powerful. It starts to bring in hope, sometimes in a very hopeless situation. And so as we're bringing in hope while we're encouraging them, because we know that maybe they've lost sight of the promises of God, or they believe him for other people, but it's hard to believe it for me, right? So we want to remind him of the promises of God. He is with you. He will never leave you. He's got a great hope and a plan for you, a future for you. He's got it planned out. And then we want to affirm their worth. Their worth as a person, as a child of God, as a unique individual with gifts and potential. Remind them of their identity in Christ, what the Bible says about them, who they are, what their identity is. And I know that these, these would be warm and fuzzy on like a regular day if your friend just gave you these affirmations, this encouragement, offering hope. But when you're in crisis mode, these are life-giving. And sometimes they're too good to be true. Sometimes it's hard to believe it for yourself when you're in crisis mode. So we want to make sure that we almost even like repeat yourself, <laughs> you know, over and over. We just want them to know. You want it to sink in. And we believe it for them even if they don't believe it for themselves just yet. And then pray. I would encourage you to pray with them as you encourage them. And I would encourage you to pray out loud. Maybe step out of your comfort zone if that's not something you typically do. But if you think back to a time when somebody prayed out loud over you and the power that it has, there is just something powerful about hearing someone intercede on your behalf. So I would encourage you to pray out loud with them. Yes, ma'am. That's a great question. Okay, so when you are reminding them he has a plan for you and they ask, what is the plan? Mm -hmm. You know what? I don't know all the answers. I know he has a plan for you and he promises that plan is not to harm you. But he has a hope and he has a future for you. And we just remind them of just the truth of that. Oh, you mean the plan, like not God's plan, but you mean the plan that we're going to do? I'm talking about God's plan. But does that, will that relate later when you go through the plan for that person? Is that somehow parallel or cross? We are going to point them to scripture. Okay. We are going to get them plugged into church and those kind of things. So, yes, hopefully they will see those, those two coming together. Does that kind of answer your question? I feel like I might not be... Yes. Right. 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 Because when you're in crisis mode, it's hard for you to believe that for yourself. Yeah. When we're speaking it over them, we are helping. We are. We are demonstrating our belief for them on that on on their behalf. Does that make sense? So not that I'm saying it for them to believe it right in the moment, but I'm saying it because I know it's true. And I'm believing it for you. And in this plan, in the guide section, you know, I'm, we're going to create a plan to where we'll get you closer so that you'll be able to hear the Lord too and see it for yourself. In the meantime, I'm believing it for you. Yes, yes. That's right. Thank you for that question. That was good. Any other questions? Okay. So we've listened. We've encouraged. 
And then we begin to guide. And during this step, we are helping them to develop an action plan. And we also want to hold them accountable and follow up with them in a few days to this action plan. Some of the things that I list are just very simple and very practical. There are a million things that you could do during this, but I just wanted to give you some ideas and some examples of maybe some, some things that somebody might need. I think it's important too to remember that when we're in crisis mode or survival mode, like if you think, if you have children and you think back to like newborn days <laughs> where you were barely able to remember feeding yourself, showering, those kind of things, like we need very basic things in survival mode. And so it's okay to choose the really practical things because that's, that's all we can handle in survival mode. And so some of those things could be, as you're helping them to come up with a plan, some of those could be maybe encouraging them to establish a regular quiet time with the Lord. Maybe you teach them how to do that. Maybe you um, give an example, hold them accountable to that, encouraging them to get involved in church activities. If they're a teenager, involved in youth group activities. Encourage them, maybe even equip them with some skills to work out differences with the people that they live with or with their parents, even if they don't live with them, with their roommates, their spouses, their children, maybe helping them to work through that and work towards reconciliation. Helping them to, <laughs> encouraging them to get out of their room and engage with roommates or family more. Very simple things that could make a huge impact for them, especially if there's depression. Encouraging them to fast from social media for a time or avoid certain situations or friends and maybe even pick up a new hobby or a sport or some exercise. So these are all things that you can help them to come up with um, as part of their plan. And then you might, depending on if it's a good fit, you might help them to find a mentor or someone to disciple them or find a small group for them. Perhaps they're not plugged into a life group at a, at a church, a local church. Maybe you can help them find one that fits their stage and age. And I said for teens and young adults, but really this next one is for everybody. Encourage them to reach out to extended family members who have a positive influence in their life. And so for instance, maybe they're estranged from their parents. Maybe they don't have access to their parents. But who else in their family? Is there a favorite aunt, uncle? Is there a favorite aunt that has always been there for them? Encourage them to reach out to that person. So you see where we're kind of building community? It doesn't have to just be us. We want to help them to find other people that they can also talk to and lean on. I'm still here for you, but hey, who else could be in your circle? You need a team of people. It takes a village for all of us, right? So who else can be in your village? And who else is in your village that maybe you hadn't thought of? And then we want to help them to begin to change their thinking using scripture to counteract the negative thoughts and feelings. And one way we could do that is by offering to place specific scripture on note cards or on the mirror as a reminder for them. And then I've listed some some scripture there for you guys. That's very, very minimal, very basic. Um, but I would encourage you to lean into the Holy Spirit and ask him to show you what are the lies that they are believing. And Holy Spirit, show me what is the truth that I can, I can pray over them, that I can help them to pray over themselves and over this circumstance, that they can cling to, that they can claim as they are in the midst of survival mode right now. Okay, any questions on guide, on creating an action plan for them? It's a written plan. It can be written. Mm -hmm. I think it would be best to be written. What about other suggestions? What are some other things you can think of for an action plan? Journaling is a great idea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anytime you can get it out of your head. Yes. Really, anything that works for you in crisis mode or in times of stress would be helpful to share with them. What if they're not a believer? Like, does that change things? That's a good question. 
I don't, it doesn't necessarily have to change things. In crisis mode, that can sometimes soften our hearts a little more to being open to, okay, well, if you memorize this verse and this helps you, then maybe I'll try it too. <laughs> sometimes in crisis mode, it puts that wall a little thicker between them and the Lord, their openness to the Lord. And if that's the case, then we can stick with the other practical things while we love them through this. Hopefully they see Jesus in us and we'll have an opportunity to be able to share the reason for the hope that we have for them. Yeah, I have a similar question. Maybe if I can make it more specific. I'm sure some of those 13 to whatever age, 28-year-olds can probably get some eye rolls. <laughs> you know, God has a plan for you. Uh-huh. Right. Um, right now. Just jaded to it right now. Mm -hmm. It depends on the personality or the needs of that, that individual. Sometimes I'll say, I know it's really hard to believe this right now, or I know that mom and dad have told you this since you were born, but the truth is I have found him to be faithful, and I really believe this for my life and for yours too. Sometimes that helps. Um, sometimes it is, you know what? It's okay if that's where you are right now. We'll focus on the practical. And here's some other things that we can work on while I'm praying very hard to have that heart softened towards the Lord. I have to be careful, too, um, because sometimes I think it can be also interpreted as you, they're reading between the lines and they're hearing something that you're not saying to them. And what they're yes. hearing you say is you don't have enough faith, you're not a good enough Christian. Um, yes. That's why I'm having to tell you and I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, so church hurt is real. And a lot of us grew up either with parents that used, that abused, <laughs> that abused verses, or maybe we felt like they did, um, where verses were used for punishment, or verses were used to show how bad we were, how, and heap shame. And so we need to be careful when we use those verses. I think if you're coming at it, I think you have to know their heart. And if you sense the resistance, you stick with the practical for now. There's so much there for the practical that can come. And as we honor where they're at and then pray for an opportunity to be able to grow them from where they're at, back into a relationship with the Lord, I believe he gives us the wisdom to be able to do that. When I have spoken, even at the tutorial, <laughs> when I've spoken at the tutorial and students bring that up, um, one of the explanations that I give for them, especially when it comes from parents, is that, you know, sometimes parents quote scripture to us a lot because that scripture means something to them. It has become very important to them because something happened in their life where they, that scripture just was a rock for them. Maybe that's where they first really heard the Lord's voice. Maybe that's where they first realized they were not alone. And holding on to that scripture has so much meaning for them because of their experience. The problem is as teenagers, or maybe not so much teenagers, hearing that verse doesn't really do much for us because we don't have experience with that verse. And so when our parent says, well, you just need to cast all your cares on the Lord because he cares for you, right? You just need to do that. We forget as parents, and I try to help teenagers understand, we forget as parents the process, the years that it took for us to be able to just cast our cares on the Lord. And so when I can help to kind of come alongside that individual and let them know where that parent or whoever is coming from, that sort of softens their heart to things a little bit. And I help them to maybe be open to sometime in the future, maybe not today, but maybe sometime in the future you would consider that maybe a verse would become powerful for you too. It might be the door that would open that maybe more intimate relationship to the Lord with you. Does that kind of answer? But that's, hard to be the one that you you walk through like I, I love how you pointed out that you have to remember that the verse came to mean something to me through an experience that maybe spanned a whole lot of learning and I yes. can't expect them to you want badly for them to love you and respect you enough and think highly of you enough that they just adopt your thinking they just the take it put it in <laughs> I, that, that is that's, that's what yeah. I will. That is, yeah. especially for the personality well, yes <laughs> 
especially for the ones that have to experience it themselves. They're not going to take it secondhand. They need to know this for themselves, which in the long run is such a gift, such a gift, because when they have tracked long enough with it, they will know that they know that he is there. good for us, the ones that be doing it, to hear what you're saying, because it's also the place where Satan tells you to shh, just be quiet, you know, yes. to say anything, and I know that that's not necessarily the right answer either, right. to just be quiet and not say anything, I just need to know what to say, yeah, so I like how you address both sides of um, how that might be received. Okay, any other thoughts? Shelly, I know something that you and I have talked about a lot, this guide there's so many good practical things and um just remembering we don't have to offer up all of them at the same time yes that there's <laughs> something to be said for okay let's pick one of these things and then when you see the success in it celebrate that yes you know? and i think that's that's a um, neat part of the guide too is paying attention to when that step works in their life and then in showing them the hope that comes through that. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yes, mm -hmm. one at a time, mm -hmm. one or two. Because, you know, I look at this list and I'm like, they're all awesome, and I would jump every one of them on them like, like the first 30 minutes, you know? And I want you to have all of these done by next Tuesday. Yeah, and we're going to check in in three days. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yes, very good. I also realize and recognize that most of the things under the guide are very practical, very baby steps. If you're dealing with somebody who maybe, um, maybe is in a different place spiritually, then you may look for, um, you may guide them into disciplines of the spirit. You know, so you might guide them into well. Um, how can, we, how can we totally surrender this to the Lord? How can we do this together? Where are we harboring unforgiveness? And how can we soften our heart there so that we can come into obedience there? So depending on where they are spiritually will change how you, how you address these things. I started with very practical because most of the time, hello, come on in. <laughs> because most of the time we just don't have the cognitive ability to go very deep especially when we've just spilled our guts out to someone for the first time about this very big thing. We just need very practical baby steps. I, and this may not be, this, you may want to save the question, but maybe it's the right one. What do we do if we screwed up the... <laughs> <laughs> if we mess up at step one, and um, we don't get a chance to get to encourage or anything else, we just, uh, they have decided to talk to you anymore, uh, you're not safe, how to... What are some practical steps to regain the opportunity to go back to step one? I'm so thankful you asked that. Okay, so how can you regain the door, or the open door, to go back to start with step one again? That is a fabulous question. <laughs> I feel like, okay, there's probably a million ways to approach this. The thing that pops into my head first is, Modeling how to repair a relationship. So we are not perfect. We are all humans, right? Breaks in relationship happen all the time. For whatever reason, when somebody approaches me, I'm not always in the mood or not always receptive, not always just even, especially when it's my kids, not always aware that this is big and they really need my attention because they caught me in the middle of dinner and trying to get people dressed for soccer and trying, you know, all the things. And so that happens and it's okay. And there's no shame there. Like I don't want, and I'm really thankful that you pointed this out too, because I don't want us to feel like this is the perfect way to do it. And if we don't do it exactly by the book, then shame on us. <laughs> or even if you have parents of older kids and you think, oh, I've messed up. We're, we're, there's no going back, right? There's always going back. So we model how to repair a relationship with them. And so maybe it's, hey, you know what? I learned some new things. And what I realized is the last time that we talked or the last time you came to me with, you know, wanting to talk and we didn't get very far, I've learned that I kind of, I want to do over. <laughs> I want to try this again. I've learned some new things, so can we try again? Would you trust me enough that we could try this again? 
And here's what I'm going to do. I don't have the answers. I'm not going to be able to fix it. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to listen. Will you help me to practice my listening skills? And let's learn this together. I've learned that taking the one down position, taking the one down position, asking for, can I just do this over? Models for our kids, it models for those around us, how, that, how we repair a relationship. It's not gonna be magical the first time. <laughs> because the other thing is, we get into patterns and habits of relating to people. It is the dance that we do. And it takes only one person to break the habit or to change the habit. But it's, it really throws off the other person when one person starts changing the way that they're relating. And so we kind of need to ease into this too. So if this per first thing does not go well, we'll try again later, you know? I wouldn't expect to go from listening to referring or listening to guiding all in the same, especially if you're repairing a relationship. Just go as far as you can. Just practice listening for a few, a few times. The truth is, there's so many people that are not good at listening that if you just listen, that's so healing and so nurturing, so nourishing to so many people's souls, minds, and bodies. So if you just listen, you've already done so much better, so much more. Those are good questions. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. This is not a sit down and we'll get it done in 30 minutes or an hour. That was a good question. I'm glad you asked that. And truthfully, I would stay on listening until they have nothing else to say. At the, at the end of their, their verbiage, when I say, what else? Or tell me, tell me what else is going on. Is there anything else you want to tell me? I stay there until they say, nope, that's everything. Okay. And then I move into encourage. And we stay there, unless we need to back up and go back and listen. We move back to encourage, and we stay there until it's time to move on to a plan. It's also a learning process for the new person that's engaged. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And we talked about attachment a little last semester. But you know, depending on your attachment, if your attachment isn't very healthy, having, a, having someone listen and have a relatively healthy conversation with you can be very terrifying. Because you're used to chaos. You're used to somebody being mad. You're used to big things happening when, when we start talking about real things. And so it may be that we park in the listening with our poker face on, being that safe person with them for a long time. Mm -hmm. Those are good questions. Any others? How you remind yourself. I take a deep yeah. breath. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have my go-to phrase. It's that take that deep breath and okay, tell me more about that. With a pretty smile like that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is hard to do when it's especially when it's somebody with your own flesh and blood. Very hard to do. All right, so the final stage would be refer. The truth is you won't get to refer. You won't get to this stage with everybody, and that's okay. But I just want to equip you in case you do. And so any times that you would probably need to refer would be for the bigger issues. So if there's disordered eating, if there's risky behaviors or sexual behaviors, especially for minors, um, if there's drugs and alcohol use or abuse, any self-harm or suicidal talk, and then any time there's talk about abuse or neglect, whatever the age. And so these are the ones where you would want to refer. And then truthfully, any time a person's not so big issue just becomes overwhelming for you. Maybe it's they're constantly bringing it to you. Maybe it just feels like it's such a little thing, but it just seems like it's way bigger than, than what they're saying. That would be a time when you might want to refer. 
And again, we're constantly bringing in other people into their lives and referring is just bringing in a professional or professionals into their life. So you'll want to involve a trusted adult as soon as possible, um, especially if you're working with a minor. Um, but even with adults, bring in their spouse if that's a safe person for them. Bring in somebody else. Um, ask them, who else could be in your corner? This is a big deal and I want to support you, but who else can come alongside us and let's do this all together? And then if it's for these issues, then you'll also want to give them the names of like two or three counselors. I would start with Bellevue Counseling Center is wonderful. They provide free counseling. Um, you don't have to be a member to receive counseling from Bellevue. I would start there. And then Bellevue also has a list of Christian counselors in the area that you can, you can refer them to. Another resource would be Focus on the Family has Christian counselors that you can call and you get a free session with them. So you call, they call you back later in the day. Um, I use this sometimes with, it can be helpful like maybe with parents or spouses. Um, so maybe something has been disclosed that's big and the parents or the spouse doesn't know what to do. I would encourage them maybe to call Focus on the Family and just talk with this counselor for one session for yourself and this counselor can help you come up with a plan for later. They can refer you to a local counselor if you need additional support or they can at least help you, they can guide you <laughs> with your action plan. What are next steps that you need to do? Um, so you can also equip parents and spouses that way. You can give them the suicide hotline, or you can also, um, in cases of abuse or neglect, you will want to report that to the authorities. Now, before I get into suicidal talk, are there any questions about the other big issues? Or referring for? That's a great question. That happens a lot. So we're noticing behaviors, but we're not at the step where they will sit down and listen. Um, sometimes it can be helpful to see who else in their world could sit with them. Um, if, and this happens even in the youth group, you know, like, okay, well, if, if I'm not your person, who else in here or who else in your life, you know, would feel safer to talk to? Mm -hmm. um, as a parent, pointing my kids to others. Okay, well, you don't want to talk about this with me? Who else? Who else would you feel comfortable talking about? Um, and know that they don't have to tell me anything. You know, like, we'll keep it totally safe. Um, but maybe trying to find other people. Maybe even going back to, I've learned some things. I'm trying to do some things differently. Would you help me to practice my listening skills? Would you help me to practice my new, my new way of handling big stuff? So does that kind of help? Okay, so some signs to look out for. I know I'm, I'm reviewing suicidal talk. I'm not going into all the details of what you, what you um, I mean, what you could do, but I'm including this because I know that that's kind of one of the big ones that we get scared of, especially when we run into crisis with someone. And so I just want to maybe alleviate some of your fears and equip you and guide you <laughs> with some practical strategies that you can use. So if they start talking suicidal, so that would be like um, the, the theme of their conversation is very hopeless or helpless, um, maybe talking a lot about death, talking about ending their life, or my family would be better off without me, my friends would be better off without me, just wish I could fall asleep and never wake up, those kind of things, I would pay attention to those. Um, and, you know, if you just hear one or two, that, that's not, that doesn't mean that, you know, they're at immediate risk. But I would just kind of pay attention, pay attention to those things and maybe ask them some, some further questions to make sure that they're safe where they are right now. One way you can do that, um, well, also you're watching for depression. And I want to point this out, too, because with teenagers and young adults, a lot of times depression looks like anger. So if you see increased anger, if they're extra irritable, maybe it's depression, maybe it's not anger. Um, so watch out for that. But other signs of depression would be a sudden change in behavior, maybe even withdrawal or sleeping a lot more than usual. I know a lot of times teenagers and young adults will tell you, I've just been sleeping a lot. Like I go to bed at 3 a.m. and I don't wake up till 8 p.m. And that's not normal for me. Okay, let's talk about this. What's going on? So those can be signs of depression. And then I would encourage you, don't be afraid to ask if they're thinking about taking their own life. And this is important because 
I know, especially <laughs> several years ago, this would have terrified me. I wouldn't want to put this idea in their head. You know, if they weren't thinking about it, I don't want to put it on their radar. But what I have found and what I have learned and what they have learned through studies, the smart people, is that by putting this question out there ourselves, if we put it out there, then we make it safe to talk about. So if they really are worried about it, but they're not, they're not sure if you could handle that, or maybe they're not afraid, they're not confident enough that they could say that with their own words. Maybe it feels too real if they say it out loud themselves. And so if you say it out loud for them, it kind of makes it easier for them to just say, yes, yes, I have felt that way. If they haven't had those feelings, what I have learned is that they will say, oh, absolutely not. No, no, I want to live, you know. And so then you don't have to, you don't have to worry. Um, but the ones that are worried about it, the ones that have been thinking about taking their own life, if we just ask them, have you, have you had thoughts of taking your own life? it just relieves so much pressure for them because then all they have to do is say yes. They don't have to tell you all the details, just yes. Um, and then I would encourage you to take every indication seriously. I know sometimes, especially when we're working with teenagers and young adults, but even for adults, sometimes we can think, oh, this is just for attention. And the truth is it may be all for attention, but the truth also is that's a very unhealthy form of attention seeking and there's something that's not quite right there and we need to help them get help that they need so that they can find better, more effective ways of asking for attention. Does that make sense? So we want to take it all seriously, even if I have to tell them, you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to do it. You know, I trust you that you're going to keep yourself safe. However, this is an unhealthy pattern and I, I'm concerned for you. Let me get you some help. One of the ways that I get them help, I guess I'll go ahead and give you the guys this because this is very helpful. Um, when there's something that they share with me, maybe it's suicidal, maybe it's one of the other big issues, you know, like um, minors having sexual relations with their boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe it's um, a spouse is addicted to something. Um, when it's something big like that, I always give them three options. You know, this is something really important and I'm concerned for you, I wanna get help for you. And so if it's a student, I'm trying to get them to tell their parents. If it's a spouse, I'm trying to get them to tell their spouse if that's a safe thing. But I want them to tell somebody. And so the way we can do this is one of three ways. You, we can call them and you can tell them. We can call them and I can tell them. Or we can call them and we'll tell them together. How do you want to do that? So it's not, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go tell them. <laughs> it's we can call them together. You can say it, I can say it, or we can say it together. And that seems to work very well, especially when they say, no, no, no. My husband will kill me if I say this. My parents will kill me. They'll be grounded for life if you tell them this, right? No, no, no. This is very important and I'm concerned for you. So we can do it one of three ways. Which way do you want to do? And we're giving them choices in the midst of, of this. And giving choices helps to empower. It helps them to feel like they have some control. They don't get to choose whether we tell, but they get to choose how we tell. And that empowers them in the moment. Does we kind of see the difference there? See how that helps? So that's just one way that I use when I'm having to involve other people or refer. What about the parent or spouse reaction? Positive and negative. So what to You're going to have to really pray hard and let the Holy Spirit lead you in this. I would encourage the, I would encourage the parent that this is a very big deal. And it took a lot of courage for this individual to share this. And that they're hurting. And here's, here's our next steps that we've, you know, we've already decided. Here's our next two steps. And here's a list of counselors that you can refer them to. You know? So you're kind of already, because yes, that person will be in shock, that spouse or parent. And so helping remind, it took a lot of courage to share this. And here's next steps, because that person will be in shock. <laughs> They'll need next steps. Yeah. That's a great question. Any other questions about that? Okay, this might be a dumb question. But no dumb questions. When, when you, if you ask, are you thinking about taking your own life, and they say yes, what do I do with that? That's a good question. Not a dumb question. <laughs> That's where I'm headed next. <laughs> 
when they say yes, um, when they say yes, or you're looking for other signs. So um, if when they're talking about these other things, they say uh, it's going to be pills or it's going to be, you know, the gun in my dad's closet. If they have a plan, if they say yes, then that means that it's more concrete and the threat is probably more, more dangerous. In that case, things shift a little. And you want to ask, you're going to tell them again, somebody needs to know I'm concerned for your safety. We can do it one of three ways. We can call them, you can tell, I can tell, or we can tell together. Who are we going to call? I would prefer it to be, you know, a parent or a spouse or whatever. Somebody who lives in the house with you, who would that be? If that's not possible, then we look for aunts and uncles and that sort of thing. The next step would then be to get them to a counselor. Um, if my next step usually is, do you think you can keep yourself safe for the next 24 hours? And if they say yes, then okay, I'm going to put you in care of the person at your house that we just told this to, and I'm going to equip this person with the names of referrals for counselors, and we'll go that route. If they say no, they can't keep themselves safe for the next 24 hours, or I don't know, then you kind of ask more questions. They're like, do you have a plan? Have you thought about how you would do it? Do you have the means for the plan nearby. Yep, I've hidden it under my pillow, right? Then that's immediate danger. That's when I would call crisis, mobile crisis, which I have that number I'll give to y'all at the end. But I would call mobile crisis, so, or, or you can take them to the ER, or you can call 911. You can call the police, and the police can come out. Um, mobile crisis is a little softer. <laughs> mobile crisis is basically, it's a team of mental health professionals um, every county has them, but it's a team of mental health professionals that comes to the house or to wherever that person is right there. So it could be the school, the church, the house, the organization, but they come there and they assess for their, um, their risk. And that could be suicide or homicidal if they say they're going to hurt somebody at home, same thing. Um, but you would call mobile crisis, they would come out. And if they need additional help, mobile crisis can find them the resources they need for immediate placement. Absolutely. I would try to bring the parent or spouse into that. I would want the parent or spouse to call mobile crisis. We're going to start with parent or spouse, and we will equip them to do this. If they are showing that much in danger, uh, then I would make sure that I don't leave them alone. So I wouldn't say, okay, you wait here while your husband comes, and he'll pick you up, and I'll see you tomorrow. I would make sure that I, I stick with them until husband gets there. Any other questions about that? It's heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Are you finding that there's, this is more rampant here lately? These kind of things, because it seems like even as you hear about it, the culture is just really... Mm-hmm. It does seem like everything seems more rampant. I feel like this especially, I could sort of see seasonal. It ramps up maybe before the holidays and those kind of things. But I would be aware of it because you're right. With the economy, with everything else, all the other stress everybody's going through right now, I would just be aware. Be willing to ask the hard questions. This is heavy stuff. <laughs> um, so I want us to take a deep breath. <laughs> and let's step back just for a second. Because the truth is, yes, there are going to be hard conversations. If we, if we choose to run towards hurting people and not away, we will, get, we will get messy. It will get messy. We will get dirty. But the truth is, most people are just looking for someone to listen. Most people are just looking for someone to listen. And we can listen and there's not really a safety issue and all is well. We can kind of encourage them and come up with maybe their next couple of steps. But I want you to be equipped so that you're not fearful to walk into maybe some of the bigger issues. And now you know, when you walk into that, you know, okay, we've got a plan. Here's a couple of things. Here's some referrals. We're gonna involve spouse or, or parent. We're gonna create a community around this person, invite community in. 
but thankfully the majority of your conversations won't require referrals. You'll just stick in the first three steps. And you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to fix everything. You don't have to do this alone. You can involve other people. And if you feel like you're in over your head, you can call somebody who knows things. <laughs> and you can always call even Bellevue Counseling Center. They can help you with next steps. They're used to that. They get crisis calls all the time. They can tell you what to do to help this person. So you're not alone. Any other questions? For sure. And this is like, this is a very condensed version of like a all day training. <laughs> so this is hitting the high notes. Y'all's questions were wonderful, filling in the gaps. But yeah, there's so much more to this. So as you think about this, I know that there are of these four steps, there are some that you're doing really well, that just naturally maybe you're more gifted, more strong in those areas. But I would encourage you, even as you go home tonight, to think of maybe what is one area one area that you might could be more intentional to maybe practice a little more, be more intentional to maybe work with um, in, your own, in your own life. And then maybe think of what's one strategy that you could use to increase that, to kind of grow in that area. <laughs>